necessarily a big Oprah fan. I've, in fact, I've never actually watched her show, so I don't know if it's good or bad, but I've been told she's a, a bit of a universalist, you know, an all roads leads to heaven kind of person, but I'm really glad she had Rick Warren and particularly Nick Vujicic on her show. Nick has an incredible testimony. As you've heard part of it, you can watch a lot of his videos online on YouTube for free, and his story really embodies so much of what we're talking about today and what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Philippians. Last week, we walked through the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3, listening to Paul as he pours out his heart to the church members there in Philippi, the people that brought him so much joy. And in essence, Paul tells the Philippian Christians that this life of following Christ is an all-or-nothing proposition. In other words, there isn't really any middle ground when it comes to following Jesus Christ. You're either all in or you're all out. And, and if you think that it's possible to sort of straddle the fence, living for Christ and the world simultaneously, you're really only fooling yourself. As Paul explains, that everything that he had gained personally in this world, he counted as loss, rubbish, like complete trash compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, nothing in this life, nothing that any of us could ever achieve or obtain, could possibly compare to a life lived for Jesus Christ. And then in the last few verses of our text last week, he informs us that what we become in Christ doesn't happen by our own effort or talent or ability. It doesn't happen by what we can attain. It's accomplished, rather, by what we give up. We give up our power so that his power can be made greater in us. We give up our will so that his will can be accomplished in us. We sacrifice our flesh, our desires, so that his spirit can rule in our lives. And in all of this sacrifice, the giving up, this suffering, which we're going to talk about some today, our faith is made stronger because it is in that process that we learn to trust in Him. And it is then by that faith that He makes us righteous in His sight. Okay, if you were here, you remember verses 8 and 9. Paul said, For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Okay, so... We give up ourselves for the sake of Christ that he may be made strong in us and our faith built up as we learn to depend on him. And I'll be the first person to tell you this morning that this is much, much harder than it sounds. I mean, it, it sounds like a nice little formula for a successful Christian life. But the reality is this process, at least in my experience, can at times be brutal just Jesus talked about suffering the apostles talked about suffering for the sake of Christ and it's easy in this day and age and in our culture to associate that solely with persecution because Jesus and the apostles suffered persecution as do Christians today all around the world although not so much here in America and when Jesus and the apostles talked about suffering they most certainly were referring to persecution but not only to persecution and one of the examples of that was in our text in verse 8 last week, which we just read. Paul explains, for his sake, I have suffered. Suffered what? 
What has Paul suffered? He goes on to say, the loss of all things. Okay? This isn't simply referring to being persecuted, if at all. This is suffering for an entirely different reason. Remember, just before this statement, Paul listed all of the worldly things, the attributes, all the things that he had attained before Christ in his life. And then he describes how he suffered in losing all of it for Christ. Okay, suffering for Christ is undeniably a part of the process of following Christ. So accept that. Get over it. It's, it's a fact. Much to the chagrin of our prosperity gospel brethren, Scripture guarantees us that as followers of Christ, there will be suffering in this life. And I used to wonder how that could be, because we live in a free country, and we've been privileged to worship freely our entire lives as Americans. But in studying and understanding Scripture, and really even more so in just trying to live a life devoted to Christ, I've come to realize that suffering for Christ means much more than persecution. In fact, I would say that the bulk of our suffering for Christ may well be in the process of crucifying our own flesh and giving up our lives for Jesus Christ, whether or not we're ever persecuted for our faith. This is suffering that every one of us experiences when we commit to following Jesus Christ, because every one of us has to sacrifice ourselves for him, for his sake. Paul experienced this type of suffering, as he's just described, and we're about guaranteed to experience the same kind of suffering if we're serious about living for Jesus Christ. And the, the truth is, it can be very, very difficult. That's why it's called suffering. For me, I've suffered loss in my life. And the least of that is what I've given up materially. Okay, That almost doesn't factor into the conversation for me because the reality of my situation is, no matter how small my house is, no matter how small my paycheck is, I'm still in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. And so are probably all of us in this room. But just to put that into perspective, in case you're wondering, if you earn as little as $11,344 per year, you're still in the top 13% of the wealthiest people worldwide. So when I say suffering, I'm not talking about the cars or houses or toys or paychecks that I've given up. I'm talking about giving up myself, my wants, my ego, my pride, my self-satisfaction, my plans, me, me, me. That is the part that's so hard. And it's the part that I regularly fail at miserably. Sometimes I'm a mess. Why? Because I really like me. You know what? I really like me sometimes more than I love Jesus. Let's just be real for a minute. How many of you, don't raise your hand, you'll make me feel bad, can honestly say that every decision that you make is for Jesus Christ first and yourself second? Not me. Not always. But I realize that. I'm not afraid to admit that. But I also realize that the fact that I'm aware of that means that I'm responsible to do something about it. Like what? Like giving up more of myself for the sake of Christ. All of myself. And to tell you the truth, sometimes it feels like one step forward 
and two steps back. Do you know what I mean? Here's some really great news about that, though. In this often difficult, sometimes painful, I think occasionally brutal process of dying to ourselves, suffering the loss of everything that we can claim on our own merit, throughout all of it, our God is full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love for us. And as we express our repentance and renew our faith in Him, every time we do that, He grants us righteousness that we do not deserve and cannot earn. That's the God that we serve. That's good news. And Paul has a firm grasp on this truth, and he's sharing it with the Philippian church. So today we're going to continue in the third chapter of Philippians. We'll just finish it out as Paul goes from explaining what we are to do we looked at last week in terms of suffering for Christ, giving up ourselves, to now explaining in the next 11 verses how we are to go about doing that, okay? And just as we learned last week, it's an all or nothing proposition. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 if you have your Bibles, and we'll put it up on the screen and pick up our text where we left off on verse 12. Again, Paul has just explained that we must suffer the loss of all things, giving up ourselves for his sake so that we may become like him, Jesus Christ, and attain the resurrection from the dead. That's eternal life with Christ, okay? Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, okay? So Paul's already acknowledging the fact that he hasn't made it yet. He hasn't obtained perfection. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." The first thing that Paul says that we must do as a part of this process of living for Christ and, and sacrificing our own achievement and our own merit in the midst of, of giving up everything, even as we suffer this loss of all things, Paul says we must forget what lies behind and strain forward. Press on. He doesn't say ruminate over your past a while or linger in the good old days. No, he says forget what lies behind. Forget it. There's no time to wallow in the way that it used to be. There's no value in dreaming about yesterday. Lord, we learned that from the Israelites, didn't we? After they left Egypt. The past is the past. We should learn from it, but not live in it. Paul says, leave the past in the past. And then what? Drift forward. No. Stroll forward. Lean forward. No, he, he says strain forward. Press on. Why do we have to strain forward? Why do we have to press on? Because Paul is well aware from first-hand experience of the difficulty in following Christ as we learn to give up all things for his sake. This is how Christians suffer in order to become more like him. We suffer loss, self-denial, sacrifice, and let me tell you, that can be a strain that requires pressing on and not looking back. But Paul takes it a step further. 
and making sure that we understand that even mature Christians are susceptible to failure. Verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In other words, just because you're a mature believer doesn't mean you somehow arrived. Okay, in fact, Paul points out that he hasn't arrived in this same discussion. So we might be at different points of progress, right, on, on the journey, but we're all in the same boat. If you're a Christian, we're all headed to the same place. And we all require the same discipline to not looking back, the same effort to straining ahead, and the same resolve to pressing forward. And he finishes the passage, and we just read, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's saying, look, if you're a mature Christian, don't slack off thinking you've already made it, right? Don't lose the progress you've already made. Don't lose what you've attained in Christ. Strain ahead. Press, press on. Don't look back. And this is particularly relevant to Christians, I believe, in the Western church today. Because we haven't had persecution like the church in Eastern Europe or parts of Africa and Asia and the Muslim countries all over the world. I think that it's easy for us sometimes to feel this sense of privilege almost as if we've arrived. Like we don't have any need to strain or press because God has blessed us and we're not really under all that much pressure. And this is exactly what the enemy would like for us to think. That we can just take it easy and have our, our best life now. You know, that's the prosperity gospel. But that's precisely the opposite of what Paul teaches. Yes, we can have a blessed life. Yes. Yes, we can have joy and love and peace and fulfillment. Yes, I've experienced all that overflowing. Absolutely. But our best life now, not by a long shot. We don't experience our best life. The full glory of our resurrection until we're united once again with Christ for all of eternity. No more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. No more loss. Until then, we must strain ahead. Pressing on. And sometimes endure suffering in the process. Suffering because of the process itself. A process that means dying to oneself. And that can be very hard to do. Okay, let's continue. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ, excuse me. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and the, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Again, Paul here is describing people who are living the opposite of straining ahead and pressing forward. Instead of counting everything as loss, the people Paul's talking about are living for themselves and earthly things. Their God is their belly. It's what they want. Their glory, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And so, where Paul's instructions are to first forget what, what is behind, strain ahead, Press forward toward the goal. The second part of his sort of prescription here for living an all-or-nothing life for Christ is to be a living example. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, he's saying, emulate me. 
and others who are passionately and consistently following Christ so that you can be an example, so that others will emulate you. Be a living example. So, so let me ask you, who do you have speaking into your life? Who do you look up to? Who do you try and emulate? And it's easy to say Jesus, and obviously that's a good answer. But look, God put other people in our lives for different reasons. And one of those reasons is so that we will learn from each other. And who you choose to pay attention to when it comes to learning is really important. If you're going to become a carpenter, you want to learn from the best carpenter that you can apprentice, right? If the guy that you're learning from cuts corners at every opportunity and uses inferior materials and tries to cover his mistakes instead of fixing them, what kind of carpenter are you going to end up being? Probably one who cuts corners and uses inferior materials and covers his mistakes, right? If you want to be the best at something, you need to learn from the best. And Paul is saying, look, I'm not perfect. Even the most mature Christians aren't perfect. None of us is perfect. But short of Jesus showing up himself in person, you need to learn from those of us who've given up everything, who are all in, who've committed their lives to following Christ and teaching others how to follow Christ. And as you grow in the faith and mature in your walk with Jesus Christ, then others will be able to follow your example and learn from you. That means that a big part of your job as a Christian and my job as a Christian is to be an example for others to follow. And one of the ways that I believe that we sometimes mess this up is we tend to regard our own feelings and convictions and sensibilities when we think about being an example to follow but can at the same time I think disregard the feelings and convictions and sensibilities of those who are following us. Why I've just seen that in the church, in my own life. Why, why do we do that? Well, because I'm trying to be an example and I know what is right and you don't. So you just need to get over your hang-ups, get with the program, follow me. It's my way or the highway, right? I've been there, but that's not how Jesus did it. And that's not what Paul and the other apostles taught. In verse, uh, the first three verses of Romans 14, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And then Paul goes on in chapter 15, the first two verses, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Okay? To be clear, we're not talking about compromising our faith to please those who are lost or to surrender sound doctrine to those who are preaching false doctrine. Jesus is clear on that subject in Matthew 18. We don't tolerate wolves in the church. Okay? Clearly the gospel is offensive to the world by design. What we're talking about here is being an example for other Christians who are weaker in the faith or not as mature in the faith by using our lives as a blueprint rather than a hammer. That means treating them as an apprentice, teaching them how to read the blueprint of a mature Christian life rather than treating them as a nail that we pound the truth into. Right? 
And Jesus modeled this with his own disciples all throughout the gospel story. Okay? Paul is modeling this for the Philippians here. That, that part of living an all or nothing life is giving up the satisfaction of always proving to others that you're right and they're wrong. And instead of showing them by your example what it means to live a life of grace and love and righteousness as we follow Jesus Christ. But that's what we have to do. And again, this isn't, this isn't always easy. It goes back to giving up ourselves and our own desires. It requires much more effort, you know this, to, to show someone grace and patience and love than it does to hammer them with the truth. It's a lot easier for me to smack my kid in the back of the head and tell him what to do than to sit down and lovingly show him how to do it. And so we suffer in giving up our selfish need to always prove that we're right by instead taking the time and effort and compassion and the love that is required to be a living example for others. And Paul points out that imitating him, by the way, doesn't mean focusing on him. It means joining him in his humble, radical dependence on Christ. Always straining ahead and pressing forward. Okay, now then, let's finish our text for today. Back to Philippians 3, starting on verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, Paul, as usual, uses his words here in this last bit very carefully. In uh, about 42 BC, about 100 years before Paul came to the area of Philippi. It was the setting of one of the great battles in the Roman Civil War that had broken out over the, after the death of Julius Caesar. And there were these two victorious generals, Antony and Octavian, who became uh, the future Emperor Augustus. And they had found themselves with all of these soldiers in northern Greece with nothing in particular to do with them. So rather than bring them all back home to Rome or even to Italy, which would have been very dangerous for many of them, they gave the soldiers land in and around Philippi and thereby made it a colony of Rome. Okay, and so Philippi is full of these Roman soldiers and then later their descendants. And it prided itself on being a Roman colony. And because it was located on a, a main road that ran west to the narrowest part of the Adriatic Sea, it was really easy to sail across there to Italy and then travel on to Rome. And so Philippi and the people there kept in close contact with Rome with the mother city. And these Philippians, who were proud to be a colony of Rome, ordered their lives and their, their whole society much in stride with the Roman life, okay? Including the recognition of the imperial cult, right? The emperor, Caesar, was to be worshipped as Savior and Lord. And so it was a really big deal as a Philippian to be offered the honor and privilege of Roman citizenship. And Paul knew all this. So he very intentionally reminds the church here in verse 20 that your true citizenship is in heaven. And therefore your allegiance is to Christ rather than to Caesar. Again, who's your example? That's what he's asking, right? 
we're so hung up sometimes on the church being relevant to our current culture. But the truth is, the New Testament church was counter to the culture in just about every way. Okay, and just one further point on this and then we'll move on. When someone in a colony like Philippi said, I'm a citizen of Rome, they didn't mean that someday in the future I'll be able to receive you know, all the benefits of being a Roman citizen. No, they meant I'm a Roman citizen right now and therefore, even though I live here in Philippi, I get to reap the benefits of that citizenship right here and right now in my life in Philippi. Paul's trying to make the same point to the Christians there. He says, you're a citizen of heaven. And yes, we won't reach perfection and glorification with Christ until he returns. And we're not there yet. But let's be clear, you're a citizen of heaven. That means that you can walk in the authority and power and truth and confidence of a citizen of heaven. Right here and right now. Right? Jesus said, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10. Your heavenly citizenship is valid right now. So that means we're not weak or defenseless, holding our breath and hoping for someday. We walk as Christians in the power and might and truth of Jesus Christ right now because of our citizenship in heaven. And so Paul was trying to get all of this across to the Philippians, knowing full well their status as a Roman colony. And the same applies to us today, okay? If you're a follower of Christ, you have a membership card as a citizen of heaven stamped on your heart and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We should act like it. Not, not arrogant or proud, but confident in who we serve and the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We should be living examples of Jesus Christ to everyone that we encounter. Ready with an answer. When people ask, why, why are we full of joy and peace? When they see us caring for other people that we don't know, people that no one else will care for. When there's a quiet confidence in who we are, and yet we're known to be full of grace and love, we should be known for that. It should be noticeable in our lives. And when people ask, why? Why are you like that? You can tell them, it's because I'm a citizen of heaven. And my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And along with that citizenship comes all of the benefits. Like peace. And joy. And love. And power. And confidence. And hope. And grace. And compassion. And it's available to anyone and everyone who's willing to trade in their allegiance to this world. For allegiance to Christ. That is being a living example. That's what Paul was to the Philippians and to us. Okay, and then in verse 21, Paul again looks forward to our resurrection from the dead and our glorification with Christ when Jesus will subject all things to himself, he says, which is messianic language that he took directly from the Old Testament. And so Paul's reiterating here his point that living an all-or-nothing life for Jesus Christ means looking forward, straining ahead pressing forward toward the ultimate goal even as we express our heavenly citizenship in this life right now. And then in chapter 4 verse 1 he says therefore meaning now that I've explained to you that you have to live this all or nothing life if you're going to truly follow Jesus Christ and now that I've instructed you how to do that he says therefore you must stand firm. 
This is sort of the glue that holds it all together because we can know what it means to live for Christ and we can even embark on that journey. But if in the suffering, if in the loss of all things, the giving up of ourselves, the weariness of that fight, if we give up, then instead of all or nothing, it was all for nothing. And Paul knows this. In verses 18 and 19, he, he described many who had already given up, walked away, or decided that the challenge, the strain, the pressing, the suffering wasn't worth it. And it's not a casual comment. He, he said, I'll tell you now, even with tears, as he goes on to explain, these who have chosen not to walk with Christ, he weeps over those who walk away from the faith. And conversely, he rejoices over those who embrace the faith. So much so that in the last verse of our text, he described the Philippian Christians as his joy and crown. The Philippian spiritual success was the crowning achievement of Paul's life. And just put that into perspective for a moment. Of all of the great successes for Christ that Paul attained in his life, how could have easily could he have chosen to look back and say, wow, Lord, thank you so much for the man you made me to be. Thank you that you allowed me, little old Paul, to do such great things for you. I'm so thankful for what I've become. But that wasn't Paul's perspective at all. The greatest achievement that Paul could ever claim for himself was the spiritual success of those that he lived to be an example for. He was an all-or-nothing guy. And for Paul, it was all about Jesus Christ and what he could do to point others to Christ. Look, the same should be said of us. Our greatest achievement in life when we leave this world should be those that we've left behind. Their status in Christ should be our legacy and our crowning achievement. So what do we pledge our allegiance to? And that may be a very personal question that only you can answer. And it may be different for all of us. But whatever it is, if it's anything other than Jesus Christ himself, Paul says, forget about it. Your allegiance must be to Christ alone. So press on and strain forward and don't look back. And, and when you do press on toward the goal and hard times come and, and you have to give up and sacrifice and suffer... And let yourself be brought low for the sake of Christ. Just remember, you're a citizen of heaven. Your allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And you can walk in, in that power and that truth now and know that your future is secure in the hope of Jesus Christ to come. So stand firm. Don't give up. And don't give in. Stand firm. Don't focus on yourself. Rather on those that God has placed in your life to be an example for them. Stand firm. Even if it means losing everything that the world holds dear for the sake of Christ, count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Him. Stand firm. Because you're going to have to make a choice. Do you want your life for Christ to be all or nothing? Or all for nothing? Paul says, stand firm. Let's pray.